Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. So, Studio HFL, by the way, HFL for trauma players is... Higher, faster, louder. Yeah, bingo, you got it. So... (laughs) Uh, welcoming Alan Miller to today's podcast, and Alan, I uh, would like to start by uh, saying how much uh, I've enjoyed your playing personally over the last 30 years here that I've been in Indianapolis. Well, thank you. And, uh, and mutual feeling. Well, thank you. And <laughs> making music side by side has been has been fun. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to tell us where you are currently, both in teaching and playing, and we'll go from there. Okay, um, currently I teach trumpet at uh, Butler University and also for IUPUI, I have, uh, they don't really have a, a music program there that has performance majors or anything like that, but they have a music engineering program and uh, music therapy now. And so a lot of the students there actually aren't really music majors, but they enjoy playing the trumpet. and. Uh, so I teach a few students from there, usually two or three a semester. And playing-wise, um, I play a lot with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Um, I'll be playing assistant principal third trumpet this season, primarily. And um, But I've played every part over time, and I've been doing that for quite a long time. I also perform frequently with the uh, Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. Um, I do uh, quite a bit of recording work, uh, pretty regular basis, um, almost every week. And uh, I play a variety of other gigs, you know, church gigs, um, um, pick up orchestra things, uh, even uh, top 40 bands or wedding bands or uh, I've, and I've had the good fortune of playing uh, with many uh, famous artists. Like uh, about a, a little over a year ago, unfortunately, Aretha Frank- Franklin just passed, but I played lead trumpet for her two times last year, which was a, wow. a great <laughs> experience. And um, and last year I played also for Johnny Mathis. And 
I don't do as much of that as I used to do uh, since I'm busier with the orchestra. But That uh, symphony schedule, is, because the ISO is a full-time orchestra mm -hmm. uh, and uh, several uh, added services during the summertime, it keeps you pretty busy. It absolutely does. Um, it's uh, And it's, it's a wide variety of things. Um, things... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of Pops Weeks. Jack Everly does a terrific job with the, the Pops here. And um, uh, then, and so there's usually at least one Pops every week, every month. Um, and then going between that and um, who knows what else, you know, uh, could be coming up there for, uh, for Conrad and the other guys in the section sometimes. And maybe for me this season, it'll involve natural trumpet. Mm -hmm. um, which isn't exactly the easiest double in the world uh, to to do when you are doing something completely different, maybe later on that program. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's all great. It's all fun. You know, I enjoy It's one of the things I think that uh, appeals to me about the trumpet is being able to play a wide variety of, of music. Um, you, know, you know, it's always been that way for me. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about natural trumpet for a second. Have you had any prior experience? Not, not really. <laughs> no, I mean, not a lot. I, I've played a little bit on one, but never actually uh, like prepared a piece and performed it or anything on a natural trumpet. So, so this is kind of cool because uh, you're you're going to have to embrace the, the possibility. Oh yeah, of, and, that, and that's fine with me. I mean, I feel like you know. I started playing the trumpet um, a little over 50 years ago. As a matter of fact, probably 50 years ago this summer, but I feel like I'm still learning to play the trumpet mm -hmm. and have been for over 50 years because I think I started learning to play the trumpet when I heard the trumpet, trumpet players before that time. So so let's, let's start there then. Mm -hmm. uh, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. um, High school band or middle school band? Uh, what grade? What so, age? Yeah, so um, there was one band director in Greenwood at the time where I grew up. Okay, so and he had uh, the the junior high and high school were in the same building at the time, and then there were three elementary schools. Um, the the band program started in the <laughs> summertime. Um, we had either four or six weeks. It's pretty fuzzy, you know, but we had four or six weeks of. Um, of summer band where beginners wow. began and uh, uh, then when school started uh, our band director was a trumpet player his name was David Van Velde and uh, he would come around to the elementary schools before school in the morning probably two or three days a week I'm not sure but it was a mixed group you know I don't know there were probably uh, 10 or 15 of us I don't recall mm -hmm. for sure there were 10 or 15 of us in the in the mixed group, and we would have band before school in the morning. And um, um, that's how I got started. And then uh, the next year, uh, so that was the summer before my sixth grade year. And the next year, I was at the junior high, and the junior high and high school were still together. So it was a pretty crowded school at the time. Um, but it was nice because I was around all the older players in the school and I got to hear a lot of, 
there were some really terrific players there. And so I got to hear a lot of uh, uh, good playing. And uh, Mr. Van Veld always encouraged older students to help younger students because he was pretty busy, I think, you know. And, but he, he, everybody felt like they were a, a part of it, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I was blessed to have some terrific band directors, uh, starting with Mr. Van Bell. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, that's how it Had it you had any music experience prior to that either? No, my parents, uh, neither one had any musical experience or anything. Um, and I didn't really, I mean, except for in elementary school, um, we played recorder and sang and things okay, like so that. something, some something, yeah. They had they had uh, they had good music classes at the school and you know, um, and at at church we would sing hymns and and do sing in Sunday school and that sort of thing. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think I learned a lot. I think you know having a hymnal in front of you when you went to church and being able to see the four parts and stuff like that was uh, very important. I play a lot in a lot of different churches now, and that's not frequently not the case anymore. Um, well, yeah, I think, you know, you, you mentioned that, and I think back to how I how I started, and it wasn't just right on trumpet. And, it, mm-hmm. and I did have piano prior to that mm-hmm. for a few years. But growing up in a church where you had to crack open the hymnal, mm-hmm. and whether you could read... Uh, the notes at the beginning or not, you learned pacing and you were doing ear training, whether you could call it that at that Absolutely. point or not. You were. And the importance of that, you know, standing next to people who are also singing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that could mean that you also learn to sing poorly because if Absolutely. the person sure. standing next to you is not that great. But I think there's such a value in that that doesn't seem like that happens anymore. That those not as much. I I, that kind I, of I agree. It, it doesn't happen as much. And the other thing um, that I was fortunate about was in the '60s there were a lot of famous trumpet players um, that were on television. We're talking 1960s. Right? 1960s, <laughs> right? 1960s, right? Um, not the 1860s. And not the 1860s. I'm not quite that old, but um, almost. But uh, there was television. Black and white mostly, but uh, we had to go. Three channels. We had to go. Yeah, three channel, three or four channels, and then we had to go across the street to see the color television when Batman was on. You know, so. uh, But anyway, um, so, I I heard like players like Al Hur and and Louis Armstrong, and I think that's, I I don't know, I that's probably why I wanted to play the trumpet. Mm -hmm. Hearing those guys, I remember, I think it must have been about the time I started, maybe just before, I think it was the second Super Bowl, maybe, the Packers were playing um, the Raiders. It could have been the first one. Again, my, mm-hmm. it's 50 years ago, so forgive me if I'm incorrect with this. But the halftime show featured uh, Al Hurt and Doc Severinsen uh, playing with some college band, and they uh, played souls back and forth. And I remember thinking, wow, that guy's almost as good as Doc, or as almost as good as Al Hurt, or maybe better than Al. <laughs> and Hurt. it was Doc. And it was Doc, you know. But I never heard Doc before because sure. I didn't stay up late to watch the Tonight Show when I was ten, or mm-hmm. you know. Um, so anyway, uh, and just a few years later, you know, I found out 
how great Doc was too. Um, and I, well, I realized how great he was then, but it was like, you know, I was thoroughly impressed that there was someone who could play as well as Al Hurt. And, uh, but all those guys, you know, I mean, uh, and like I said, my parents didn't have any musical background, but, uh, and they didn't ever need to encourage me to practice. I always, you had that motivation. I always was motivated to practice. I wanted to, I wanted to play well from the very beginning. Uh, I, I was pretty naive about a lot of things because I didn't have, um, uh, for a long time actually, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, um, um, but they never asked me to stop practicing either. Mm-hmm. And they, they never, um, I mean, and we had, uh, they have five kids. I was a middle one. So there were, and we lived in a three bedroom ranch house. And so, uh, um, everyone put up with me making a lot of sound. Uh, I realized you had, you didn't call it music right then. <laughs> sound. Well, I, yeah, I don't know how it sounded. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, at the, so, at were, the, did you uh, have things pretty well put together? Did your band director help you get a good foundation with the embouchure and breathing? I, as far as I know, I mean, I think I I, I never uh, I, I maybe had to make some minor changes later on, but um, maybe that happened because. Um, uh, of an injury or something like that um, that I, I had in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I was set up pretty much uh, in the middle and everything, you know. Um, uh, I think I sort of developed um, um, a natural vibrato um, because of the players I was listening to. Uh, you know, and had heard, mm-hmm. and uh, so I started taking lessons with a, uh, a gentleman named Merrill Henry, and um, Merrill... Is this high school? This was uh, maybe 8th, ninth, 10th okay. grade, around there, um, and Merrill had been uh, a cornetist with um, the Goldman Band, mm-hmm. and uh, he was uh, roommates with Nilo Hubby, the guy that wrote the clarinet Bellman book. We started in the Bellman books mm-hmm. uh, back then, and um, he didn't. He thought uh, any wavering in the tone was a mistake, and uh, he would in my lessons he would actually keep a tick sheet, and. Any time I made a mistake and a wavering of my tone was a mistake, he would write a tick down. And uh, at first I got, I had quite a few ticks, and later I, I could get so I could really control mm-hmm. what I was doing and I could have a straight sound. Um, and I could still produce vibrato if I needed to. So, um, Why do so, you think he did that? What, what do you think his uh, school of thought was on... Keeping that well, I, I think maybe I mean maybe he did it intentionally with me because he heard that you know my vibrato was too much and wasn't going to work in every situation. It could be that the actual style for those bands was very little to no vibrato, and I think that may be the case. Mm-hmm. He also played clarinet and, and and some other instruments, saxophone. He, he played a, a lot of instruments. And which wouldn't necessarily use vibrato. He wasn't the biggest fan of jazz in the world, mm-hmm. so um, um, which 
my band directors generally were. They were uh, uh, Herman Knoll came uh, my uh, like after my sophomore year, and uh, he was also a trumpet player. Mm-hmm. Went on to become um, uh, one of the bosses at Hal Leonard Publishing Corporation, and um, great band director and, and really um, sharp individual. You know, um, so your private teacher at this point is his. Now that you can look back at it, mm-hmm. it was his teaching style more of he played it for you and you played back, or you played together, or you know, did I, he, he play it all during? He during he played days? a little bit. He didn't play a lot for me. Um, and we used the Arvin book. He taught me a lot about reading music because, like I said, I didn't really have um, much experience prior to the trumpet. Um, and I actually took um, organ lessons with his wife. She was my elementary music teacher. And uh, uh, so I would go down to their house. They lived in Franklin and uh, my mom would take me down there and uh, um, and I'd have an organ lesson and I'd have a trumpet lesson. So um, then after that, I had some lessons. I had uh, um, some lessons with Paul Hilgeman. Uh, Paul was the second trumpet in the ISO at that point. And uh, he had a schedule similar to mine now. So, and, and back then, communication was uh, a lot more limited. So, and he taught, actually, he taught here at University of Indianapolis uh, when it was Indiana Central College. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had some lessons with him here, uh, but his schedule was real irregular. And so it was kind of hard to schedule with him. Um, and what, what did he, he have to he, focus on? He, um, he, uh, had me focus on some, like some musical types of playing and he played quite a bit for me. Uh, so I got to hear some really good playing, you know, at the time. So that, that was mostly the fact I didn't have that many lessons with him and, um, and he just kind of continued with some Arvin things and, and that sort of thing and, and would, his lessons would sort of pick out an individual thing. Well, you know, that's that phrase sounded nice and he would help me, you know, make it better or something like that. Uh, I had some lessons with Delbert Dale, um, and, but Delbert taught on the north side of Indianapolis, which seemed like it was an eternity away from Greenwood at the time. Uh, and for my parents, I mean, we weren't wealthy by any means, so um, getting up to lessons like that would uh, uh, wasn't always possible. It's a big task. It was, yeah, yeah right. at the time. So, um, and Delbert um, worked on um, buzzing my lips and, and being able to buzz higher and uh, he wasn't able to play at the at the time. Unfortunately, he had already gone through his um, had a stroke. First. He well at at that point he had had uh, he got Bell's palsy like in nineteen or about the time I started in nineteen sixty eight around around there, mm-hmm. and he um, found out he had inherited kidney disease mm-hmm. and he never really recovered from the Bell's palsy. So he went from being the busiest freelancer in town and a virtuoso player to never being able to play again. Mm-hmm. He worked very hard. He had a, a, a music store called Musical Arts Studio. And uh, 
he had really good teachers there. I think Jim Edison and uh, Ron, uh, oh, shoot, I can't think of his name, taught there. Um, but his legacy, even when I moved to Indiana mm-hmm. in 1988, 89, right. Delbert Dale was still a name that was really well known. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that speaks to, even though he couldn't play, what I gathered, what now I'm gathering here is that mm-hmm. his influence was still there. His his students always sounded great. I mean, I went to high school with one of the students, Dennis Young, who had a beautiful sound. Um, he, um, I mean, the legacy. If you look at Dan Ross and Bob Wood, they're they were peas in a pod. You know, they both beautiful sound, both great trumpet players. Um, Terry Avigleben was a. Uh, a student of Delbert, he he had a, a magic about him. He could uh, somehow communicate to students how they how to sound because his students, even though they never heard him play, they sounded. You could tell their sound was Delbert's sound. Uh, and I'll, I don't know if I'll ever understand how he did that. Right, you know. So you'd mentioned early on, though, uh, as far as you're listening to Al Hurt and Doc Severinsen, um, that had to start to expand. You know, who now are you listening to intentionally? So so in high school, um, um, like a neighbor gave me a Rafael Mendez CD, (coughs) CD, a record. You know, we didn't have CDs. And uh, we had cassette tapes and records at the time. So... um, I I got uh, let's see my parents bought me a, a recording called Tootie's Trumpets, which is an amazing recording of of big band playing. It had Conrad Gazzo and oh wow and um, um, Jan Racy and uh, Pete Candoli, um, Manny Klein, some really terrific players. And, and uh, I mean the style was. Um, a little cheesy sometimes, but uh, but amazing playing on that recording. I got a um, a cassette recorder and I had some cassettes. I got a cassette of some players playing like um, Baroque trumpet concertos and, and classical concertos. Some of the really screaming things like the Michael Haydn and and the Richter and you know uh, different things like that. And the Telemann was on there, I think. And I got some Maurice Andre recordings, and um, in high school, you know, all the big bands were still on the road. So I heard in high school and college, I heard almost all the big bands live and and on recordings. Um, there was no orchestra in high school, so my first experience with with an orchestra was when I got to to college at Indiana State. I was studying with Dalvin Boone. He was a terrific teacher for me. And um, because, like I say, I was pretty naive. I had gone to school with, uh, in high school, um, like one of my classmates studied with Bill Adam. And um, like another, Dennis was the one I was speaking of earlier, studied a lot with Delbert. And so I, I've always learned a lot from the players I'm around. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, I've been around a lot of really fine players. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, in high school, there were um, uh, 
some older players that I think were terrific examples of how to play. And then uh, in college, the same thing. I mean, uh, Dalvin had um, uh, Jim Ketch, who teaches at North Carolina, had just been through there. And he lives there, so he would come back in the summertime and we played some recitals in the summertime. And there's some just other kids around. John Ellis, who teaches in Ithaca, maybe, or, or Crane, someplace in New York, uh, or did teach there, uh, was there for a while. Um, and he transferred to the University of Illinois. But uh, Dalvin had... Um, uh, sorry, I got away from who were influencing. Yeah, okay. But uh, um, I listened to. A, I'll get back to that. So, so I listened to a lot of the guys who played with the big bands. Okay, uh, um, uh, and like I say, I didn't uh, in high school. I didn't really have that much experience listening to orchestras. Um, some of the band directors did take us to hear uh, symphony concerts from time to time, and the Indianapolis Symphony used to play at the mall in Greenwood every year. So I heard that, but, um, um, and actually I heard Woody Herman's band at the mall with Bill Chase playing lead trumpet. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, just kind of a random thing, but, you know, but I heard a lot of things like that. Um, Then, um, so... What's what's your focus during all this? Are you have you delved into any kind of improv, or had you thought uh, about boy, I really want to go towards a commercial style of playing, or I want to do a classical style of playing, or were you just kind of doing no, I everything? Just, I just love playing the trumpet, and you know, and like so the like I said, my band directors uh, liked the um, uh, the jazz big bands of the time that were uh, traveling. Um, and actually my freshman year, it was even called stage band, not even jazz ensemble or anything. And uh, um, then later, there was more jazz influence. I really didn't, uh, um, I really didn't understand improvisation very much, you know, I mean. Who does? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah. A, a few play, I have some, yeah. some yeah. students who do terrifically well at it, but but um, um, but at that point I really didn't, you know, it, I didn't get it. When I got to college and I started to um, get more involved, I heard you know recordings of the Chicago Symphony and the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Cleveland Symphony and the New York Philharmonic and everything else, and and then I in and on the jazz side I started to. Um, listen to Clifford Brown and, and Clark Terry and uh, Dizzy Gillespie and uh, you know and so I it, it was just like it was amazing in that time uh, um, being able to uh, hear a lot of those people live and the Trumpet Guild started about that time too uh, um, and I joined like Within the first or second year, mm-hmm. I, I was I was in the trumpet guild. The, one of the early conferences was at University of Illinois, and um, so um, John Ellis, uh, uh, who I referred to earlier, had transferred to Illinois, and he was hosting several of the um, guests for the conference. Mm-hmm. But I got to hear 
and I heard Dizzy Gillespie play live a few times, but I got to hear Dizzy at that conference, and I got to hear um, Marvin Stam and um, several others. Um, um, a natural trumpet player who was terrific. Just I, it was you know it was just like a kid in a candy shop mm-hmm. hearing all these great players. Um, and then let's see. Um, so the second, getting back to uh, how I got into orchestra kind of things. So like the orchestra at, the, at uh, school needed a, an, another trumpet player. So John Ellis was playing it, and so he uh, he recommended that they have me play in the orchestra. So I went and played in the orchestra. And the first thing I ever played was Espana. The Chaparral mm-hmm. Espana, and it's an F trumpet part, mm-hmm. and uh, I hadn't really transposed. I oh, had done, no. I had done a little transcription and stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, and you know when when you were dealing with cassettes and records, things weren't always in the same key. So right, because they would speed it up or slow it down to make it fit the right. The so uh, I had transcribed a Telemann concerto from a recording that I had, and I. It was I had written it in an E flat concert, so I, and and I and I figured out how to play it on the B flat trumpet because I had no idea what a piccolo trumpet was. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm not sure it sounded very good, but you know, it, but it was pro, it was a good ear training kind sure. of thing too. Sure. Um, and by the way, I think one of the turning points in in high school was getting a cassette recorder. Because I could record myself and hear myself mm-hmm. play back, and I, I think that was a vital uh, part of a, a major improvement in my mm-hmm. playing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, so I, I played with the orchestra. Then um, did that go well? That Espana. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. so I, but you he just I, actually John just said, uh, oh, "Oh yeah, this is an F trumpet part. So just think up two lines or two spaces." And I said, "Okay." So the next rehearsal, I could do it. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. (laughs) You know, I mean... I, I don't know, you know, I, uh, so that was, like I say, my first experience with, with transposition, really, that I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, so then, uh, and I was, I was, uh, when I came in, I had no idea what to expect or anything, you know, getting to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I played first trumpet in the, in the second band. And, this is still at Indiana State. Yeah, and I played, um, uh, but I wanted to be involved in in as much as possible. I played um, uh, third trumpet, and somehow, actually, I won the jazz cheer in the jazz ensemble, the top jazz ensemble, which is I don't I don't understand, but um, but anyway, I that I did that for the I would play third trumpet in the top jazz ensemble and, and played the solos. Mm-hmm. Um, then, um, for that year, then I 
So my freshman year, I feel like I made a lot of improvement in the summer following, um, just because I was exposed to so much more with the orchestra and and it's like um, and studying with Dalvin, he was a terrific teacher for me. I you know we worked on. Um, he started me on the Conconi Studies, the Reinhardt Conconi Studies, which is a nice book because of its progression and so forth. So I learned more about how to phrase and just, you know, nice playing. Those are great yeah. books, too, for transposition. They are. Because They're of the terrific simplistic and melodies. And... Right. We did some of that, too. Um, we used the uh, Colon Lip Flexibilities book um, and the Voxman Selected Studies quite a bit. And I played a couple of um, uh, solos like the Fantasy in E-flat, uh, Barah, and uh, Hugh solo de concert, I think. But the next year, uh, I it, things kind of took off a little bit more. I um, won first chair in the wind ensemble with the top band and uh, also principal in the orchestra. I played in a, a brass quintet and I played, um, I started to get more jobs I, and I won second trumpet with the Terre Haute Symphony uh, at the beginning of the year that season too. It was an interesting year because uh, it was uh, the first, it was, they were uh, in the process of hiring a new conductor. The, the conductor for the previous 20 or 25 years had just retired. Mm -hmm. And uh, so everybody was doing a big blockbuster concert. So from the very beginning, I mean, we played uh, that the first season, we played Pines of Rome and Pictures in an Exhibition and Firebird and, you know. And that was just the first half of the concert. Right, exactly. <laughs> it, it was, well, yeah, one of the most <laughs> memorable concerts in Terre Haute was Orsena Smith, who teaches uh, orchestra at DePaul, was uh, the assistant conductor for a, a while after that. And uh, he did a concert where we played uh, uh, Candide Overture and Symphonic Dances from West Side Story on the first half and Copeland three on the second half. Oh my gosh. I know. Yeah, that's, like, <laughs> that's brutal. So, yeah, so I, I played uh, first trumpet on the Bernstein and I played second trumpet on the, and Dalvin played first on the, on the Copeland. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> you, you know, it's funny, you mentioned brass quintet and if you think about the year, give me an idea what, what you're, you're talking here. Um, this would have been 70... Six, maybe. Because even at that point, brass quintets, that was a new thing. Pretty Still much, relatively yeah. new. Relatively and, new. And the amount of repertoire available was limited. Yeah, a lot less. I mean, um, in on my recitals, I, I did recitals my sophomore and junior and senior years. And they, they at the Trumpet Guild used to print people, your, your recital programs in the journals. So... Um, my recitals programs are in the Trumpet Guild journals, or at least a couple of them are. Um, I shared a recital my sophomore year, and I believe I played, um, let's see, we played uh, uh, the Hummel Concerto and the Hinnemith Sonata, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I don't remember what all, I think. But we played the, the Vivaldi Concerto for two trumpets. I shared the recital with an, another student. 
And um, sounds like you're getting exposure to a lot of good repertoire. A lot of things, and but we often would include a brass quintet. My senior year, okay, this is I went to school at the same time as Larry Bird was at Indiana State. Okay, so my senior year, my senior recital, I was playing. Um, um, let's see what was on that program. Uh, the Steven Sonata, and uh, uh, I think. The Nellie Bell Golden Concerto, which isn't done very much. Um, uh, maybe that I might have been doing the Telemann on piccolo or something. Uh, and uh, but anyway, that we ended the the end of the program was the uh, quintet by uh, uh, Malcolm Arnold. Oh sure. So um, actually, Terry Avigleman was was playing in that group, uh, and. Uh, so and she played in the basketball band. I wasn't playing in the basketball band at, at, at that time. I subbed a couple times, but um, my recital was scheduled the weekend of the final four. Oh no! <laughs> and so uh, I had a brass quintet together of students, and uh, all the students except for Terry went to Utah to play with the the basketball band. So. Um, Fortunately, faculty members stepped in and, and played the Malcolm Arnold on my recital, and it was it was good. But that, it's either you know Larry Bird on one hand or Alan Miller on the other. You know, right, it's like, <laughs> you lost out unfortunately. I, exactly, yeah, he was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was always fun to watch, and you know, it was yeah. it was an exciting time for that too. So I want to move ahead just a little bit. Uh, did you do a master's degree anywhere? I did not. Uh, did you study with anyone following Dalvin Boone? Lots of people. <laughs> I've, I had lessons with uh, Chappie after that, um, Martin Perry, and uh, the principal with Indianapolis for 40... 41 years. Yeah, 41 years. So uh, I had lessons with him. I also had some lessons with uh, a lot of different people. Um, uh, let's see, uh, Phil Collins, uh, Charlie Geyer, um, uh, now, where was Charlie at this point? Was because, he was, you know, he was at Northwestern. He was at Northwestern. This is okay. a little later. So, still uh, yeah. accessible in right. Indianapolis. And I, I always, I, I mean, I've always felt like I would, I would go take the lessons time, from time to time um, with a lot of different people. But when I was in college, I, again, going back to that experience, like uh, Symphonia at our school would sponsor a jazz festival, and we'd have great guests. I mean, uh, Vinny DiMartino came one year and was a trumpet guest, and but they would have four guests on the on the concert. Mm-hmm. The next year, Dave Stahl came, a great lead trumpet player. Um, but every year there would also be a, uh, they had a contemporary music festival where the Indianapolis Symphony would come and be in residence for a week and uh, play new music, and sometimes we would get to play along like there was a, some piece for jazz ensemble orchestra and rock ensemble that we played mm-hmm. um so a whole bunch of different things um like that and then then later in the year there was always like a uh, a major composer that would come to campus and we'd do a concert with them mm-hmm. so uh carol husa came um one year and we did the Divertimento for Brass and Music for Prague, mm-hmm. which was... Did you do that with band or orchestra? We did it with that band. with band, the, the Music for Prague. And that was a, a, a significant concert for me because 
I didn't understand the music when we were practicing it before he got there. And it was like, I really didn't care for it much. But after performing it, it was like really meaningful and it was, and I understood and I got it, you know. That's some really challenging playing too. Well, it, regardless of whether it's the orchestra, trumpet part, or the band, but the band part I think is. Oh, absolutely. It, 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 it is. And um, then the, I think um, Paul Creston came the next year. Um, and uh, was Frederick Fennell coming out at that point and doing those recordings? No, that was a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, that was after John Boyd became the band director there, um, which was later on. George Gresh was the band director uh, when I was. When Were I was you there. part of any of those recordings? That I'm part of almost all of them, or wow. maybe all of them that Terrific. were done by. It started as a, a faculty um, uh, wind ensemble at Indiana State. And then it grew into uh, um, Philharmonia Avant, um, which John Boyd led and Fred McFinnell. Mm-hmm. And we made uh, maybe about a half dozen recordings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we also traveled to a WASB convention in um, San Luis Obispo, California, which is terrific. Uh, uh, we played new music and uh, it was pretty challenging. We made some really difficult recordings. I mean, one one time we did a, a, a recording that was only released, I think, in Asia. And, um, wow, I mean, it had some... Uh, I felt like I had to sound like Louis Armstrong on one piece and mm-hmm. try to sound like Adolf Herzog on the next piece and try to sound like, you know, whoever, Freddie right. Hubbard on the next thing, you know. Right. Um, it, it was, yeah, mm-hmm. um, something. But, okay, we're going to... And then, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on with this because Aaron Copeland came the, the, my senior year. Wow. And uh, so <coughs> I'm fortunate enough again to um, get to play. Uh, we played uh, Billy the Kid and uh, Lincoln Portrait and went ensemble, played uh, Emblems and, and maybe... Uh, there might have been something else, but you did know. you understand who he was? I mean, oh, absolutely. He was eighty years old, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. He lived it another ten years, mm-hmm. but um, eighty years old, and he was well known at the time. And um, he had conducted the New York Philharmonic the week before, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, and I think I played well on the concert, you know. And so, it was a wonderful experience, also. So. Well, and you've had a lot of experiences like that, continuing with the ISO and the oh, Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. And um, this is not where I was going to want to head, but I, I do want to talk about uh, the musical atmosphere around Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, pretty alive and very eclectic, to say the, the least. I mean, I know there's there's even a bluegrass movement. Oh yeah, in Indianapolis, <laughs> and uh, it's so, pretty amazing. Yeah, because I mean. For this a city the size of it, I think we're somewhat fortunate as trumpet players being here uh, because you can play a variety of music. I mean, in some larger cities, I think players have it, it's more difficult for a player to play to play you know an orchestra gig and also be uh, uh, one of the jazz players or ten, you know right. like New York City probably has you know uh, the best 
blues trumpet player in the world may live in New York City. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, so I'm probably not going to get a job playing up with the blues band in New York City. But we may get a job mm -hmm. playing with the blues band here from time to time or something, you know. Sure. So, um, and he's probably not going to get a job with a brass quintet. Right. You know, right. Uh, or whatever. So, it, and it, so you can be a little bit of a jack of all trades as regarding playing when you're in a moderately sized city, I believe. Um, but that's also awesome because, you know, I've gotten to play with the best <coughs> orchestral musicians here, uh, the best band players here, the best uh, rock musicians here, the best jazz musicians here. I, you know, um, it's yeah. pretty special. And, and it's a good vibe. It is. Everybody seems to get along well, you know, it has respect for each other. And, um, and I think it goes back to... Um, uh, earlier players leaving a, a nice legacy. Larry Wiseman was oh. a terrific um, mentor. I was so grateful to get to meet him and, and work with him a little bit before he passed. Unbelievable. Terrific mentor for uh, for the young players around here about how uh, not only how you should play, but how you should play along with everybody else. You know, uh, and that's, you know, it was special. And uh, his, he, he died in 2003, but um, I several times a year people talk about Larry, sure. his legacy. I mean, it, it comes up on a lot of gigs. Yeah. Um, he was a terrific player and, just, and a better person. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, so I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your teaching. Okay. Uh, you currently teach at Butler. Mm -hmm. Where did you first... Was it a single private student, or did you pick up an adjunct position somewhere? Okay, so um, I taught at music stores and I, uh, for um, a number of years because that's all that was available for a while to me. Anyway, then um, I had worked some other jobs. I worked some day jobs and, and so forth during time, and I would always played a lot of gigs, but then... Um, I decided I wanted to play and teach full-time, so um, I started teaching in schools during the day, and I um, did that in some uh, schools in Lawrence Township and in um, Greenwood and, and different places. Um, fairly soon after that, uh, uh, I subbed a little bit for Jim Edison when he was teaching here at UND. Then Jim had a stroke and decided to retire, and so I took over the, the job here uh, about a year later, maybe. Uh, so this is about 20 years ago. I, um, they had the opening at Butler for, uh, for a teacher, mm -hmm. um, and I um, auditioned for that, and... Uh, um, taught some trial lessons and, and things like that. And um, they hired me. Uh, and You think about that evolution from that first lesson you had maybe taught in a music store mm -hmm. to where you are now. How do you, <laughs> how do you think your teaching style has changed? Uh, well, I, I mean, as I've learned more and more about uh, playing, I think 
I've been able to relate that to my students. I mean, sometimes I, I think going to take a lesson, like, you know, I'd go take a lesson with, with someone and it would fire me up, you know, to be a better teacher because it would just remind me of, of things and how I need to, you know, like I said, I, I've never been one that needed to be motivated, but obviously we all run into students who mm -hmm. need some motivation um, and some who don't, you know. I mean, um, speaking as a motivation, I like, I spend a lot of time going to the library at Indiana State or whatever or wherever. I, I, I've taught, taught lessons at Pages Music in Terre Haute while I was in college. And they had a large library of music that you could just go through at that time. You, you can't do that anymore because everything's on the internet. Right. But um, I could find out about all sorts of methods and, mm -hmm. and, and things like that that way rather than looking at a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so how it's changed is um, I think my attitude about taking the student from where they are and helping them improve from that hasn't changed really. Um, and I, I don't necessarily believe that there's one path, uh, a singular path to get to being a great player. Even though there are fundamentals that everyone should. Absolutely. And certain uh, standards that everyone should achieve. Absolutely. I, I, I definitely agree with that. But um, sometimes something that you'll use with one student doesn't necessarily work with all your students. Right. Um, and, you know, so I try to do my best to figure out how I can help a student make the most progress. The, most quickly or whatever. Do so. you find uh, any of your previous teachers coming through in your teaching from time to time? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, all of them <laughs> from time to time, you know. Um, and just, uh, I mean, uh, and their teachers, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, because uh, some of my teachers, I mean, some of them study with Sidney Muir, some of them study with Haskell Sexton, some have studied with Will Scarlett, some have studied with Arnold Jacobs, some studied with Herseth, you know, um, and others, you know, I mean, I don't know even what the family tree is mm -hmm. there, um, but uh, it it all comes together, you know, some of them studied with um, James Stamp or, or somebody who followed James Stamp or whatever. Um, so, all those, uh, another teacher I should mention is Robert Birch. He was solo cornetist with the um, Navy Band. Mm -hmm. And he taught while uh, Dalvin was on sabbatical at ISU. And he introduced me uh, to more uh, Stamp and Slossberg stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, that proved to be pretty vital. Um, so anyway, uh, but with some students, I... I um, um, will go with Stamp, or John Daniel has a terrific book, too, that uh, uh, with a, a lot about fundamentals. So I'll use uh, uh, some of his teachings in my teaching. Um, the Bill Adams teaching, um, I, I think sometimes um, uh, many students benefit 
greatly from um, uh, having a school of, of thought in their, you know, in their teachers and, and, and them being a consistent way of teaching. Uh, and But I think a lot of those teachers were way more flexible than some people give them credit for being. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, there's a podcast I listen to that features a lot of Bill Adams students. Mm -hmm. And they would all say that uh, Mr. Adam would tailor that routine, which, you know, a lot of people think about the the Adam routine as a fixed thing. And they would all say no, you know, I mean, that... Yeah. Once you get past the lead pipe buzzing, things might take a completely different sure. path. Sure. And I think, uh, like, you know, I, I, if you look back, um, you can see the connection between, like, Maggio in his teaching, and I, I'm, I'm, like, almost positive that Stamp studied some with Maggio, and then Stamp also studied with uh, Sausberg. And Schlossberg was Stamps' teacher and Vacchiano's teacher. And Schlossberg, in his <clears> method, was put together by Friedstadt. It's not really, I mean, like number 80. I've heard, I think I heard uh, Tom Stevens talk about this because he studied with Stamp and, mm-hmm. and, and with Vacchiano both. And he said that number 80 in there is Mark Mezzaforte's an arpeggio exercise. And this is Schlossberg book. Mm-hmm. He said that in the copy that he had for uh, Vacchiano, it was marked pianissimo, and in the copy he had for Stamp, it was marked fortissimo, mm-hmm. because they were each working on what was difficult for them. Mm-hmm. They weren't working on, you know, it's okay to play at mezzo forte, mm-hmm. but just know that any exercise that you play isn't limited by how it's marked. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's a good idea to use, well, Rob Morgan McGregor, I don't know if you're familiar with his. Oh, the uh, orchestral yeah, books. Yeah, but using those principles that Rob Roy uh, uses of, of how to change things up to uh, free yourself from habits. That, I mean, you're never going to lose a habit. You, you know, it's a habit. You can replace it with a better you one. You can replace it with a better one, and that helps you get to that point where you can replace it with a better habit. Exactly. Yeah, and I think a lot of those uh, McGregor books, mm-hmm. they make the original excerpt exponentially more difficult. Mm-hmm. So that by the time you come back to the original, it's like, hey, this is not so hard. It's not so hard. Exactly. Yeah, those are, those are terrific. So I use that. I, I try to use that. I try to give my students um, tools so they'll be able to teach themselves. Mm-hmm. Another thing is I, I don't. I try to, over their time that they study with me, give them a few different approaches to playing too, because I've witnessed some players who maybe later in their lives uh, experience an injury or something like that, and when they come back, um, they're not exactly able to do it the way exactly the way they did it the first time, mm-hmm. and they have to find a, a, a different way to get there. And fortunately, most of them do you know, make it back to a high level of playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I say, generally it's a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I think it's, again, very important to use the tools that we have now with um, our phones and things like that. Uh, you can use a terrific recording device that is in your pocket, you know, and uh, using that, deciding what you're going to play. Well, and so many apps. 
exactly. that you can so have. Many apps, you know, yeah. So there's no excuse not to have a metronome, a tuner, a drone generating device, exactly. a, a recorder. Yeah. You know, we used to have all of those things, uh, and even uh, a mirror because you can use your iPhone or an iPad to, exactly. to actually watch yourself while, sure. while you're doing that. So, sure. Uh, but it's isn't it interesting though that students still find excuses to. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. But that's I think that's just a natural. And sometimes you, also also you can learn from uh, things that aren't even related to trumpet playing, um, like the Inner Game of Tennis. I think mm-hmm. is a terrific book and and about how we learn and how we do things and how we operate. Um, and if, and there there is an Inner Game of Music, um, and. I think Barry Green's a is it Barry Green the I think that's right. Uh, I think he's a wonderful man, and and I I read that book, and I wouldn't recommend reading that book because I th- I think you can get more out of it by reading the Inner Game of Tennis and relating it the way you mm-hmm. want on your own, you know, rather than needing that right. step in between or whatever. But I'd recommend his other books. Um, well, you know, the, the amount of resources we have and accessibility to method books is as great as it's ever been. Yeah. You don't have to go to a library. All you do is you open up the Internet, <clears throat> and uh, and a lot of times now you can download uh, some things instantly and have that obscure text, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, had been out of publication and you thought you'd never see again. Um, let, let's talk about... Uh, players that you listen to and maybe some that inspire you even though you said you know you're pretty self-motivated sure are there players that oh absolutely that make you think boy i want to learn to do that and then the second part of that question is who do you steer your students towards who do you have them listen to yeah well i mean it, it depends on the kind of music that uh, and you know obviously we, we've talked about trumpet being involved in all kinds of music I I love to listen to Ollie Edward Antonson. He's mm. uh, I mean he's a fantastic. It's exquisite playing. It's it's amazing, you know. His cornet sound is just oh yeah, that, just everything he does, you know. So he and sometimes he posts some things on Facebook. It's just like he's just practicing. He's just messing around, and it's like I'm just you know incredible playing. Um, Hokan Hardenberger, you know, another great player as far as solos go. I mean, Wynn's recordings when he was doing more of that thing are all terrific. Going back to Maurice Andre and stuff, he's, you can still listen to those things and they're still still really good. Well, his articulation on the piccolo trumpets is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. The most amazing thing to listen to. And then, like, um, just, this, just the other day, Conrad and I played the Vivaldi um, concerto at a, at a church, and I used my F trumpet because um, I don't get to use it very often. But it reminded me, and it um, it works really well for for that, you know. So um, it reminded me of um, um, listening to um, uh, Ralph Medvig play with the Empire Brass because he used the G trumpet or G or F trumpet right. or something right. a lot, and you know. That sound is just a little bit bigger than a piccolo sound, but you know, bright and brilliant, and you know, just a beautiful sound. Um, so listening to that sort of thing, uh, I, I enjoy. 
Um, I, you know, as far as lead playing goes, you know, yeah, it, it, it's hard to beat Wayne Bergeron or, or, um, or going, going back to Snooki on or we had a great example with Larry Wiseman here. Um, they're, you know, and I also feel lucky because uh, I get to listen to great players just when I go to work. Um, uh, I, every day, I, get, was, I heard once someone say, Adolf Ursus had an, an advantage because Bud got to hear Bud the day before, you know. Yeah. And so he always yeah, remembered how right. Bud sounded. Right. But anyway, um, um, but I get to work with John Rommel and, and uh, uh, Joey Tartell and Ed Cord and you and uh, Dan Gosling and all the guys in the orchestra, Conrad and, you know, Chappie. All these guys, terrific players, you know. And to, to get to hear them play and, you know, um, and I, I, I failed to mention way too many players there. Yeah, I, Dan Galando might be one who's like, Dan hey, Galando, wait a second. right, <laughs> exactly, Dan Galando, uh, you know, but I, uh, <laughs> you know what, I, I'll edit his name into uh, okay. that original list. Thanks, <laughs> you know, thanks, but, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I could go on and, sure. list, and list a lot more, um, uh, but anyway, the, um, I learn a lot from those those folks. Just hearing them play, and sometimes we talk about, you know, um, what is going on with students. Or you know, it's it's funny because we know each other uh, really well, and, mm-hmm. and I say we, not just you and I, sure. but uh, the whole you know, community. The people, right. You know, it uh, that discussion of what mouthpiece do you play. Because we had that discussion, right? And so we can get on to more meaningful Except for things. Bob. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, Bob Wood is, is still changing mouthpieces. That's right. Like, uh, every, yeah. every, well, between the first half and the second right. half right now. But, which is, I mean, he played the same mouthpiece for... <laughs> I'm going to just double check. we got a few minutes left to, okay. on there. So... Um, you're talking about changing mouthpieces, Bob. Yeah, Bob Wood. I mean, he played the same mouthpiece, I think, for 20-some years. And then he started experimenting with things. And uh, and he's a great player. Yeah. So, um, but he's he's frequently changing now. <laughs> anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it's enjoyable to, uh, to observe his um, Yeah. Well, we all have our quirks. We do. Yeah. We do. <laughs> I have lots of them. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> Maybe a word of wisdom for younger players, a word of advice for, for them. Um, I would say um, be honest with yourself about where you are. Uh, listen to as much music as you can with the trumpet. Uh, record yourself often. When you listen back, um, then be the judge. Always be in the moment when you play. Be um, Practice like you're performing. I mean, like... Give yourself that audience of the recording device, and when you, and don't be judgmental. Don't think about how you're doing. Think about only about the music. If you're thinking in words, you're not doing it right. You know, think about the the sound of the music. Um, we know when I'm uh, when I'm teaching, I try to uh, let you know. Hopefully, the kids learn that. Um, when you're looking at a piece of music that 
just like you, when you read a word, you, you get an image of what that word means to you. Mm-hmm. You need to get an image of what that, uh, those notes on the page sound to you. And that's what you produce through the instrument. You know? Wow, that's terrific. Yeah. So, I, I think I might actually start doing that. No, I'm, I'm not being no, coy about that. I think yeah, that's, I, that's a great way to think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, because um, it's that's what we're doing, mm-hmm. you know. When we, we've increased our vocabulary over the years when we in our reading, so we we don't even look at the individual letters of words anymore. We don't. We shouldn't be looking at the individual notes. They're all important. They're all like every letter is important, right? Because you put the wrong a different letter in a word, it changes, changes it completely. Absolutely. But and so every note is important, but you don't read every note. You you get the concept of exactly how it sounds, and the more the better you know the definition of a word, or the better you know how something's going to sound in your head the more likely you are to be able to play it well. Mm-hmm. And communicate that to effectively your, to your audience. And absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for yeah. helping me out there. Well, great minds work pretty <laughs> together. Right? Yeah. So, Alan, thank you so much well, for everything you've offered today. And sure. uh, look forward to playing many more gigs and hearing absolutely. you play. I, I love sitting in the audience and, and hearing you play, too. Well, so, thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcasts from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.